1: You want answers?
0: I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth.
2: Hello again, free thinkers. Welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me in the studio is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. We have an awesome guest for our show today. Our guest is Sergeant Dan McKnight from "Defend the Guard and Bring Our Troops Home." Dan has been utilizing the legislative process to apply pressure to state governments to stop sidestepping the Constitution and Congress to authorize illegal wars. The stated mission of Defend the Guard is to, quote, have states use their inherent sovereign authority to rebalance war powers between the branches of the federal government, end quote. And Dan and his team are doing exactly that. Now, Dan is incredibly well-spoken, articulate, and well-versed on the complexities of both government and military. And in this episode, we discussed the how and why Dan started his organization, why Americans have become so acclimated to war, the difference between AUMFs and Congress declaring war, and we even get into some conspiracy theory discussing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosion. But don't worry, guys, it's not all doom and gloom. I promise we ended the episode with a much-needed white pill explaining how we as a country are actually moving in the right direction. Hello, Dan, and welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Now, I must admit Even after being in the alt-media world for nearly a decade now and crossing paths with numerous anti-war activists over the years, I actually hadn't heard of your work or organization before the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C. in February, which is kind of surprising, but I'm glad that I got to see you speak there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And since then, I've been following you and keeping an eye on your work and to catch up our audience, on you know who you are who maybe aren't familiar with you. Uh, you're a sergeant, you're a 13 year veteran of the military, uh, army, and national guard. But you're also the founder and chairman of both Defend the Guard and Bring Our Troops Home. And you've been featured on mainstream media such as PBS. Uh, in March, you were on Tucker Carlson Tonight, and recently, you were on the Jimmy Dore Show. Uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now, which is huge. You know, Jimmy has a very dedicated and loyal audience. So you've been doing some great things, and you and your team are working hard in dozens of state legislatures to pass bills to keep the National Guard out of wars not declared by Congress. And in fact, in uh, March of this year, uh, Arizona State Senate passed the Defend the Guard Act which is a great step in the right direction. I'm hoping to get into some more of the details about all that a little bit later in the show, but it seems like the most appropriate way to start the show would be asking what the catalyst was that shook you out of your military indoctrination and I guess motivated you to not only speak out against the military industrial complex, but to activate against it
0: oh that's uh, that's a great great intro and a great question and and first thanks for having me on i appreciate it we uh, we follow the show and uh i think we're mostly aligned on on most things especially uh the the importance of individual citizens uh having some sovereignty in their lives over the government yes well my my history is i joined the marine corps out of high school um i didn't have a lot of prospects going for me and i joined the marines and uh and served the marines during a short period of time in the clinton administration and uh, that was a time in the 90s when there wasn't a whole lot of uh, common um, U.S. intervention in wars around the world. You know, we weren't in the empire mode that we're in now. And uh, President Clinton was trying to actually defund the Marine Corps and make it a, a de- department of the Army or a, a, an official department of the Navy, which it sort of is anyway. And out of a lack of funding for the Marine Corps, a lot of Marines left in the 90s and either transferred into the Army or got out altogether. And I chose the, the, the former and I joined the Army and transferred uh, and finished my service uh, in the mechanized infantry in the Army. After I was done with my enlistment in the Army, I came home back to Boise, Idaho and uh, went, enrolled in college, joined the Army National Guard and continued my service. I loved wearing the uniform. I loved what it did for me personally uh, to make me a, a better human being, I thought, and, and uh, give me some guidance. Um, I got out of my, the National Guard right before 9-11. Uh, My term was up, I was done, I was about to finish college, and I I was starting a new chapter in life, and then 9-11 happened, and I went down the next day and re-enlisted back in the National Guard out of a sense of anger and frustration, wanting to avenge um, the things that had happened to our country. Um, I was uh, a bit naive and and a little gung-ho, but our National Guard unit here in Idaho is an Apache helicopter battalion, and I knew that we were going to be going to Afghanistan to fight the war, and I wanted a piece of it. So I enlisted and I did. I joined the, uh, we went to Afghanistan in 2005 through 2007. We were there uh, early in the war, which is a weird thing to say, you know, early in the war means something bad happened. That means the war went on for a long time. And uh, but I was there early in the war and uh, it was at a time when the National Guard had not been used as part of the active fighting force in in the, the way it is today. We were kind of the tip of that spear. And nobody wanted us there. Nobody wanted the National Guard there. We were part of the 82nd Airborne and the 10th Mountain Division, and they didn't want us. And uh, so we didn't belong to anybody there. We didn't belong to um, their supply chains, to their command structure. And we were kind of left out on a limb. And I had soldiers that worked for me on my team that were in worn-out uniforms and boots. They couldn't get body armor and gloves and goggles. And I was frustrated by the system. I didn't, there was nowhere left for me to go to get help, to get supplies for my men. And out of really, really uh, a sense of desperation, I grabbed a satellite phone and I was deep in the Pesh River Valley in Northeastern Afghanistan. And I climbed to the top of a mountain um, in Afghanistan and got a real clear signal on that, on that satellite phone. And I called the only person I knew to call. I called the governor of the state of Idaho. And uh, his name was Jim Risch and he had been appointed governor um, about a, two weeks before this phone call, and and a dear friend of mine had given me his office number and he said, if you call him, he'll answer. And sure enough, Governor Risch answered. And I told him, you know, this is Sergeant McKnight calling you from the Pesh River Valley in Afghanistan. I hope I have your attention. And he goes, yes, Sergeant, you've got it. What can I do for you? And I I told him the situation and he goes, Dan, I've I've been the governor for a minute. I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do something because I understand my role as the Commander-in-Chief of the Idaho Army National Guard. And I hung up the phone, walked back down the hill, hoping that it was that something would happen. And uh, 48 hours later, I got notification from my chain of command that the supplies that we were needed were on their way to Afghanistan and that whoever I had called had done something to to un- unclog the machine. And then they took away my satellite phone uh-huh. and uh, I always held Jim Rish up as, on this pedestal as a as a hero and. I got home from the war disillusioned, angry, frustrated. We had been fighting an enemy that the day before was our friend and tomorrow would also be our friend. You know, we would we were funding tomorrow's enemies with today's dollars and I was frustrated and angry and I felt like we were there without a purpose, without a role, without a mission, without a definition of victory. And I came home, got out. I was injured when I was in Afghanistan. I got out after 13 years of total service and I washed my hands of it and said I don't want anything to do with this American idealism, that we're there spreading democracy and hope and freedom and all the good things that we hear on on the news, I was angry. And uh, I paid no attention to, to matters of war again for another, I don't know, six, seven years until one of my best friends who I deployed with from the Idaho National Guard was called back for his eighth combat deployment a few years later, wow. Wow. eight times as a National Guardsman. Jeez. And I thought something has to be done. We're not hearing about this in the news. No one's talking about this abuse of Idaho's school teachers, police officers, tradesmen, mechanics, doctors who are being drugged out of their home communities to go fight in some third world country without a purpose. And so 2019 was a really strange year. President Trump was in office and he was singing this song of, of ending America's endless wars and America doesn't fight endless wars and great nations don't do this. And it was kind of resonating with me and i looked and saw that the republicans took control of the senate and my governor jim rish was now senator rish and he became overnight became the chairman of the senate committee on foreign relations the second or third most powerful man in the country in matters of of foreign um operations and i thought well jim rish is a hero i'm gonna call jim rish again And uh, instead of calling a senator that's that powerful, I had to do the next best thing. I I wrote an op-ed. You know, I'm a Marine, right? I I eat crayons for breakfast. I don't write very well. (laughs) And I did my best. I used my best penmanship. I I got the thesaurus out. And I wrote this op-ed, and nine newspapers picked it up because I was challenging a Republican, a very powerful Republican, to take a constitutional position and recall and help bring troops home from an unpopular war. I was this outlier in society. I wasn't hate Ashbury hippies from, you know, the 1960s and 70s. Uh, I like to call myself a hippie with a high and tight. You know, I was I became this anti-war guy (laughs) with a very strong, conservative, right leaning mentality. And it was a lonely position, but the the nine newspapers picked it up and my phone started to ring. People started to call and say, hey, I agree. And it wasn't just friends and neighbors. It was guys I'd served with who I knew also were right of center on the political spectrum. And so uh, I grabbed one of them who had a camera and we went down to the uh, to Boise and we saw Jim Risch at a Chamber of Commerce event where he was back from DC on a break and he was speaking publicly. And I said, bring your camera. We're going to get Jim Risch on the record being a hero. And I went to that meeting and I stood up and I raised my hand and asked a question in front of a thousand people. And I said, Senator Risch, my name is Dan McKnight. I wrote you a letter uh, in the newspaper and he stopped me right there. He goes, Dan, I remember you. I remember 2005 when you called me. Um, you're right. We should not be fighting these endless wars. We should not be nation building in a third world country without the approval of Congress, without the people of the United States having a voice in it. And I sat down, I sat down. I was like, uh, he did it again. He's going to go back. He made a policy position right here in Boise, Idaho, that turns U S foreign policy on its head. And I thought, man, this guy is a hero. Old Jim Risch jumped on an airplane. He went back to Washington DC and he voted three times over the next 90 days to extend the wars in Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria indefinitely. Wow. And I knew at that point in time that Jim Risch is no hero of the people and he is just a DC swamp rat. And I knew it was going to take people like myself, veterans who had literal skin in the game to stand up and say enough is enough. We have to restrain us foreign policy. And right there on the spot, bring our troops home was formed. And uh, we have been on this terror across the country for the last four years um helping remove politicians that, that vote wrong like liz cheney and helping to push state legislation that would res- would take away 50 percent of the active duty military's fighting force through the abuse of the national guard and our organization is growing leaps and bounds and so that's uh, that's us in a nutshell
1: great answer yeah yeah very good answer man that's kind of inspiring i have a, uh, I have a follow-up question to that um so hollywood or paris island I'm a Hollywood Marine. i <laughs> <laughs> man. I'm just kidding. Uh, I was also in the Marine Corps in the 90s. And um, like you, when uh, I got out right before 9-11 and I almost went back in, man. I thank God every day that I didn't. You know, I uh, I was bartending and making a bunch of good money. And and I, you know, they were offering me some money to go back in the Marine Corps. But I was like, no, no, thanks. But I, I feel you when you, you said it was like a lonely position to be in and. When I woke up to that and to everything like this, this military industrial complex, I certainly felt the same and I can sympathize with that. You know, Uh, then I've like joined Facebook and I found all my old military buddies on there and they kind of all tended to go the same direction as me. You know, they were all anti-war and and speaking out against, uh, you know, the Afghanistan war. And it was it was I mean, except for the guys who were still there, you know, but everybody else who had gotten out had had come like full circle just like I have it, which is a good thing, man. It's a good thing that veterans are, are coming anti war like that, because that's the, those are the ones who suffer the full brunt of the consequences of that, you know. So um, but Absolutely. yeah, like so most people, you know, unlike us who have seen through this uh, will go like through these great lengths to try to justify the military industrial complex and these these interventions claiming it helps the US and it garners us resources and blah, 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 helps fight terror, you know, et cetera. But, uh, you know, we we know that these are basically like this is at superficial at most, like these these alleged gains, you know, compared to the horrors of these wars that, you know, that they have caused. So, like, in in your opinion, what do you think are the like the most significant consequences that uh, the United States involvement in these wars have done to this country and the world in general? Well, other than the millions of deaths yeah. that have been caused by by
0: uh, our occupation of these countries, um, there's there's so many things we can attack this this question from a number of angles. You know, the economic impact of U.S. draconian foreign policy uh, um, of uh, sanctions. You know, we, we are starving a generation uh, in the Middle East uh, through our sanctions, and uh, all we all we do is we tip the scales in the favor of whichever entity seems to be. Um, the most interesting to us, they're our plaything, and uh, it's become abusive, and it, it needs to stop. But th- if we just focus on just America, because you know this America first mentality, it's been around forever. Uh, you know, Trump sort of uh, took it and made it his own. But if you understand the America first philosophy, you know it's the it's the friends with all, entangled alliances with none. We're not isolationists, but we believe that. Any action we take should further the rights and the freedom of Americans first and through our own prosperity, we can make the world better, not through our own dominance, not through the the barrel of a gun, uh, not through occupying um, another sovereign nation, but through our own prosperity, we can become that. And I hate to I'm not cliche like this, but we can become that shining city on the hill for the rest of the world. And so if, if we look internally at the America first approach, what's the biggest consequence of these endless and forever wars it's it comes down to two things we have buried american blood and we have buried american treasure in the lands that don't belong to us that we have no interest in being in and the number of deaths you know i'm I'm, one of the last things i packed up in here in my office before we moved this weekend it's three um large time time magazine covers uh it was a three-part cover um and it showed a multi-generation war and it showed Marines that had just gone to their first combat tour in Afghanistan uh, in a war that started before they were born and in a war that, in, that their parents had fought in before they were born. And so we've created this, this culture in America where war is just commonplace. Walk into a college um, right now, walk into a high school and you cannot find a person in the organization, in the school, in the, in the in the facility that doesn't know a day in their life that America wasn't fighting a war. Think about that for a second. Not a single day in their life. And I'm not talking about kids. I'm talking about adults. You know, we've been fighting a war in, in Somalia for what, 23 years now? And and we, we've made it just acceptable that the Constitution doesn't really mean anything. And I know that that's going to be inflammatory to a lot of people, especially my friends on the, on the right. The Constitution doesn't mean anything because we don't live up to the principles and the power that we, the people gave to the federal government. We are asleep at the wheel. We elect people who are asleep at the wheel and we've let Congress take the authority that we gave them and pass it on to somebody else. I'm sorry, that's not the way it's supposed to work. We gave Congress the ability to declare war and they have given that away to the president and that's just okay now. And, uh, and as evidence of that, we we drag two and three star generals before state legislative committees all the time for our for hearings on our bills and they they come in opposition of us and we get them on the record over and over and over again saying we don't follow that part of the constitution when we're talking about declaring war we just don't do that anymore well i'm sorry we have a process for changing the constitution and it doesn't rely or need a two or three star general to tell us how to do it Last time I checked, the military is a function of the executive branch, and their job is to enforce the laws that we pass. And uh, thats I think that's the biggest fallout of these endless wars is that we've gotten away from a society that understands the civics of our nature and our
1: history. Well said. I agree
2: 100%. Yeah, I, I guess I have a, a question similar to that. Maybe you could expand on your sentiment of, I know you just mentioned a culture where war is commonplace, and I couldn't agree more But the U.S. has been at war for 226 years out of 247 years of its existence. I mean, these these wars take an enormous toll on uh, the economy, the population. Uh, It's said that 23 veterans kill themselves every day. Uh, If we're just to look at a few of the previous wars, um, there was 58,000 U.S. troops that were killed in the Vietnam War. Uh, 405,000 died in World War II before that. And this is just a small percentage of the deaths caused by overseas wars. You know, uh, the defense budget slated for 2024, or I guess the request anyway, is $842 billion, far more than any country. There are over 800 US bases around the globe. It it feels oftentimes like the US is just hell bent on world domination and, and conquest. And I guess some say that, you know, the military might is necessary to continue backing the dollar and even though some of these wars, you know, we we fought in, such as World War II, might on its face seem to have been, I guess, virtuous or necessary, it was still ultimately a play by the banksters and the ruling class elite to shift and I guess pivot the the global order in favor of Western powers. So, you know, all this is stuff that we know. This has been going on for so long, and a certain class always benefits from it. But like, yeah, like, why are the American people? So apathetic, and why do we continue just to watch military conquest after conquest? I mean, I guess it's just been normalized,
0: or are we just acclimated now? Sure, you know, in, in uh, I don't believe in the draft in any any form or fashion at all. But absent a draft, less than one half of one percent of our population serves in the military. Ninety-nine point five or better have no connection to the military through service, hmm. and so. What affects the military and what we do in the name of freedom and democracy is done without 99.5% of the population having any idea what's being done. You ask anybody, anybody, any, any neophyte in the public school system, any, any common person on the street, how many countries is America occupying right now with military bases? And they would start to list them. They'd be like, uh, you know, South Korea, Germany, maybe Japan, um, Kuwait, um, that's probably about it. It's, I mean, 800 bases around the world and we're actually, we have bases in almost every country in the continent of Africa and we're fighting wars in 17 of those countries. The American public, uh, public has no idea what the American military is doing in their name. Yeah. And there's only been a couple people throughout history that have really raised their hand and said, hold on just a minute. And they've ripped the covers off and they've shined the white hot spotlight of, of disinfecting uh, truth. And one of them is a Marine, a great Marine, maybe one of the best Marines, Smedley. God dang Butler. Yes. You <laughs> want to talk about a hero. He called himself out for what he was. I am a hired gun. I'm a bag man for big business. I'm going around the world fighting wars in the Philippines and in Haiti and all these places where he was highly decorated. And all he was doing was furthering the interests of corporate America. And uh, so we've lost sight of that. He, he called it out and then another great marine general in the 90s and you'll know exactly what I'm talking to. He was our commandant in the 90s, General Charles Krulak. Mm-hmm. There aren't many generals that have come after Krulak that are willing to openly speak the way he does. He opposes endless wars. He opposes unconstitutional wars and he was a great leader of men. He may not have had that fiery personality of like a, you know, a Mad Dog Mattis or you know Norman Schwarzkopf, but he was the leader of men and he believed in principles. We've taken those principles out of, out of our military and we, we focus on blind allegiance to an order. Mm. And the problem with that is blind allegiance to an order creates a cult-like mentality when the leaders themselves are in a cult-like system, right? And so our generals, if you wanna become a general in the military, you have to hitch your trailer to another fast and rising star when you're a young lieutenant, right? You have to have something pulling you through the system. Otherwise, you'll top out at lieutenant colonel, maybe colonel if you're lucky. But if your trailer is hitched to one of those power seekers, you will rise to the system. And um, in the military, you remember this, we, we called it the uh, the F up, move up mentality. The worse you were, the faster you rose. <laughs> And they, they, they hook that trailer and they get pulled through the system until they themselves are a colonel. And the only way to get from colonel to general now is you have to have your lips squarely planted on some military industrial complex defense contractor or politician's butt to get to that first star. And then once you're in, you know that your train is, is about to reach the station because when you retire with a star on your collar and you are, you're a good boy you're gonna get one of those million dollar board positions at Raytheon or, or General Dynamics or Lockheed Martin. And so the system pulls the worst of the worst up through the ranks. And uh, then the rest of us are taught to blindly follow
1: their orders. And uh, it's it's created this culture of unsustainability. For sure, man. Do, do you ever like question it and find it odd that they taught us about Smedley Butler and boot camp and uh, failed to mention any of his actions after (laughs) he got out of the military you know
0: (laughs) they taught us about his awards his medals of honor and how many people of of brown skin that he killed
1: yeah yeah it was it seems like a risky practice right because you might like we might get out and seek him out after and maybe that's why so many of my old marine corps buddies are anti-war maybe they did medley butler after they got out you know but um you were just you were just talking about generals man and um And I agree, man, you like you have to just suckle up to the military industrial complex. And I I recently watched I'm a huge Jimmy Dore fan. And um, I recently watched you on that on a show. And you guys played like a little promo of defend the guard. uh, And it there was a little facet uh, in there that said, like, every time that you guys would try to promote the ideas in a certain state, the DOD would send out a two star general right and they would start speaking against you can you elaborate on that? that that particular detail grabbed my attention and it seems almost like it's like some mob like tactics to be able to to try to intimidate you guys into not doing this or or uh or you know to try to just stop you in your tracks it's, it's oh, seems crazy to me calling it calling it mob
0: like tactics is is kind um <laughs> So it's a little bit of backstory on this though, that we have this, this concept that we are pushing around the States is called defend the guard, right? It's it's state-based legislation that enforces the principles in the militia clause and the national guard is the militia for all intents and purposes. We can argue about the semantics uh, another time, but mm-hmm. the national guard or the militia is allowed to be called into federal service for three purposes to enforce the laws of the union, to repel an invasion and to put down an insurrection. That's it. Active, uh, activating the militia to fight overseas in a war is proper under the Constitution. That's enforcing the laws of the Union. If a declaration of war has been passed by Congress, because a declaration of war passed by Congress signed by the President becomes the law of the Union. This is not a this. It's not mental gymnastics. This is A equals B, B equals C. You know, this is moving through the logical system. So we thought with this. State-based legislation. We could block the activation of the of the National Guard if the purpose was to take the National Guard from the states, the militia from the states, and go to Afghanistan and fight a war that hasn't been declared. Seems pretty clean, right? It's just a it's 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 172 words the the entire bill. And uh, so we show up, and before we ever presented this anywhere, it had been done by uh, Pat McGeehan in West Virginia, Delegate Pat McGeehan, Air Force Academy graduate, brilliant uh, philosopher, brilliant, brilliant man. I highly encourage you seeking out to seek out his speeches that he gives. Uh, he's incredible. He had tried it for a few years and it had gone nowhere. He just couldn't get the momentum. Uh, before that, it was done by another uh, representative in Maine about a decade ago uh, and it died on the vine. So when I found this concept, we molded it, we cleaned it up, we shrunk it down and made it very narrow in scope. And I, I met with the Lieutenant Governor in Idaho and we, she called in the Adjutant General of the Idaho National Guard and the three of us sat in a room and we talked about this idea and uh, I knew the adjutant general. I knew him. I used to coach his kids in, in youth football. And I've known him when he was a captain and I've watched him rise to the rank of general. And I always respected him. And uh, he sat there and listened to our concerns. We had a great banter about the, the constitution and he's a constitutional scholar himself. And at the end he goes, Dan, I agree. The national guard should never, never fight a war that has not been declared by Congress. He goes, in fact, the national guard should fight all of america's wars that are declared by congress because the constitution doesn't actually call forth for an active duty army the national guard is the proper fighting mechanism of the of the of, of america and we agreed and he goes but and i you know when you hear but that always means that everything i've set up at this point isn't true <laughs> and he goes but i wear two hats i am the command or i'm the adjutant general for the idaho national guard and I serve the National Guard Bureau and the Adjutant Generals Bureau in Washington, D.C., which is code speak for I'm a paid lobbyist. And he goes, my job is to find additional roles and purposes for the National Guard to bring more federal dollars to Idaho to fund the National Guard, to grow it and expand its footprint. At that moment in time, I knew that there was opposition to anything that we did. And the opposition was lined with money and very greedy individuals who could be bought. And so we, we move forward anyway. I don't need the support of the National Guard. We're going to push push this bill. We're gonna elect state legislators that believe in the, in the defend the guard concept, and we've done that all over the country. We've pushed the bill into committees. We've met every type of obstruction you can imagine. and every time we do, we crush it and we replace the oppos- the, the, the people that are opposing us. And then we get to these hearings where the, the state legislature gets to have a full public hearing about the bill. And we bring in veterans from, from the wars, we bring in experts that are constitutional scholars, we bring in legal authorities, we bring in West Point graduates. We pack the room and we, we touch on uh, the emotional scars, the cost of war, the constitutional nature. We, pr- we put on a show that is you cannot refute. And then the opposition brings in one, generally one person to testify us, testify against the bill. And it's always a general, always with two stars minimum, always in dress uniform, full ribbons on display. And he sits down and he says, America needs the National Guard to be ready to deploy around the world at a moment's notice. America, freedom, democracy, it's all rests on our shoulders. We have to be able to fight in a, right now. This bill will destroy the National Guard. The federal government will take millions of dollars from our state. It will cost jobs. It will cost homes. It will destroy our economy. And the committee claps and they cheer and they hug him and they throw flowers and then they Jesus kill the bill. Christ. And no facts, no names, no, it's all conjecture. So what we've done, if we, we're we using, you know, their, their, their rules, we've got to the point now where we have our committee members that, that um, are our, our allies that are taking our questions and asking them of the general. They're starting to ask for names. Who said that we will lose money? give me a name and let's let's get them before the committee guess how many names we've uncovered zero because nobody's willing to actually say it it's all conjecture and threats and so we we thought okay we need a little bit more support and so we found representative paul gozar in arizona told him of the problem we were having in the states and he goes wait a minute i sit on appropriations i decide where the money goes not the military not the national guard bureau not some some other uh, administrative state. I do, and so he wrote an op-ed that said Congress has the power of the purse. These threats are bogus. They're garbage. They're un-American, and I, I'm willing to put my name on this and say this is what will happen. And uh, that has changed the the general's approach. Now they're no longer claiming money in the same way that they were before. They've changed their approach, and now they bring in JAG officers with them to to argue the law and. Believe it or not, jag officers are not really good at the law, so they're fun. They're fun to get before a committee, and uh, and so another example in in West Virginia, um, and I'll, I'm going to say his name if I can remember it. General um, Orr, uh, Tim Orr. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Three-star general Tim Orr from Indiana National Guard Bureau called the Speaker of the House or somebody from the governor's office who related to the Speaker of the House in West Virginia. I'm not sure which. And said, if you allow this Defend the Guard bill to even have a hearing in the House, by Monday, we will close a National Guard training base in your district. That's a direct threat. And the Speaker of the House folded. Folded like a cheap suit. I can't risk losing 500 jobs in my district because uh, Timothy Orr said that they're going to close my base. You know what? That should be called before the, uh, the the weaponization committee in Washington, D.C. This should be investigated as a crime against America because it's not the role of a general at the National Guard Bureau to threaten state legislators. And uh, so that's the type of opposition that we face. Um, it, it is a it is a field ripe with opportunities and targets and we're popping them one at a time. And uh, as we knock them down, they come up and each time they come up, uh, they're a little weaker and their arguments a little bit less based in truth, and uh, the public's starting to wake up to it, and it's it's it, the tide is starting to turn. Dan,
2: I am seeking a little bit of a clarification here after listening to you, and I, I guess I kind of understand the, the premise of the legislation that you're unfolding and rolling out here as far as it, it's not necessarily disengaging the National Guard entirely from these foreign... Mm-hmm. Uh, engagements, I guess. It, it's just more of trying to backtrack to a process where Congress actually has a role in authorizing the use of force through the National Guard. So if that's the case, like since 9-11 and before, to my knowledge, the US government has been actively engaging in wars without congressional approval, but instead using these AUMFs, which stands for Authorization for Use of Military Force for an audience that doesn't understand that. And instead of using these AUMFs, they're authorizing and funding military interventions around the globe, and more specifically in the Middle East after September 11th. But can you explain, like, I guess, what the difference is between using these AUMFs rather than a declaration of war issued by Congress if Congress is essentially signing off on these AUMFs is i mean is there really any substantial difference if the
0: war machine is being funded either way absolutely absolutely and the difference is this an authorization of use of military force is congress saying if the president takes us to war we will write him the checks that's it that's all it is a declaration of war by congress signed by the president isn't is a, a a admonition from the country. That's something so important to us um, that threatens our defense, that threatens our safety, that threatens our nation, our institutions. It's so important. We're willing to dedicate money and lives to it. And the representatives of the people, the ones that are closest to Main Street, Boise, Idaho, Main Street, Omaha, Nebraska, the representatives in Congress, they have given the will of the people um, a stamp of approval and said, our nation must go to war. And then the, the president's job at that point is to, um, to manage the war, to conduct the war, to carry it out. Are these just semantics though? I'm sorry to cut you off, but. It's, it's, it's actually not semantics. And, and we get this argument all the time. And AUMF gives the president the choice to decide whether we go to war or not. A declaration of war by Congress, the choice is made by the representatives of the people. We are going to war or we are not going to war. And here's a great example. President Obama went to Congress and asked for an authorization of use of military force to go to war in Syria. Congress said, no, guess what we did. We went to war anyway, right? An authorization of use of military force is simply Congress abdicating their responsibility and agreeing to write a blank check that has no sidebars, no restrictions. It allows the president to take the military anywhere in the world for any amount of time, for any amount of money against anybody that he or she deems as an enemy of our country. Nobody should have that kind of power. And you see what has happened with that power. President Bush took us into wars based on false intelligence, right? Um, President um, uh, Obama was the drone commander in chief, right? He killed more people with drones than ever before until Trump. And then Trump followed right along and did the same thing. There's no restriction on the president when it's an AUMF. A declaration of war, though, has the weight and the, the authority of the people. And if we are truly a representative form of government, if we are truly a republic, we are the sovereigns, us, you and me. It's our authority that is being used to wage these wars or to make any major decisions for our country. And so it, it, it's not about semantics, it's about process. And I, I'm as anti-war as you can get. I don't think that there's a war that we have fought in the last 80 years that was necessary. And um, but if we if we collectively as a nation say that there is something that's so important that we're, we're willing to bury American treasures and lives in a foreign land, then let the representatives of us vote on it and then let them come back to us and explain why. And we can hold them accountable. We have no accountability, uh, no way to hold the president accountable. He's gone after four or eight years. Mm-hmm. Right. If he's in his second term, we have zero way to hold him accountable. But a congressman or a senator every two years or every six years, they have to come home and at least once once during that term, look us in the face and explain why they took my son to go fight in Afghanistan. And it, it is a, it is a distinction with a difference. And by allowing the AUMF argument to, to take center stage, it actually it I think it personally devalues the life of an American soldier um, by saying that you're, you're just a tool of a permission slip. And uh, that's that's a, that's a
1: position we take and we fight that in every every committee hearing. We have the same arguments. They also implemented the stop loss program too. to even go further than that. You know, like even though they were sending them over there without congressional approval, at least they had terms. You know, they could be like, all right, you well, you've done your you, you know, your EASing now in the active service. But no, we're going to just go ahead and keep you in there and and uh, throw you back into Afghanistan for another couple Correct. of years. It was crazy, man. Um, Man, on, on, also on Jimmy Dore, uh you said something that also blew my mind. It was that I've been thinking about since that episode uh, that nearly like or nearly or if not all uh, Republicans in Arizona support uh to like to end these wars and seek congressional approval and to bring the troops home, which is mind blowing to me. But you also said that there is no um, no Democrats supported at all. Like it's just this split on party lines and The fact that the right has become the anti-war voice in america i mean at least if we don't mention china right Mm -hmm. um it kind of it kind of blows my mind and so you've likely noticed this shift over the last 15 years if you've been paying attention which i'm you sound like you have been that you know the right used to be the party of war and aggression and the the left used to be the big anti-war voices um what do you think is behind that shift like on, on both sides And what do you think is our way to get both of these sides to rein in the military industrial complex and, and stop this shit? Yeah. That's, that is a
0: great, that is a great societal question. And and we, I don't want to dive too deep into it, but yeah, the hippies of 60 of the 1960s and seventies, um, grew up into the radical liberals of the 1990s and two thousands. Right. And Mm so priorities shift over time. Those that opposed the war uh, originally opposed it out of principle. And then they became the anti-war, anti-neocon activists later in life. So when the neocons, you know, the really bad ones, you know, the Dick Cheney's and the George Bush's, the Lindsey Graham's, the Dan Crenshaw's, I can list them all. (laughs) When when they rise to power, the natural opposition to them, um, it takes the opposite side of every argument. So the the constitutional right, the conservatives, the non-interventionists like myself... We have we grew up in this Republican movement and realized through an awakening that what that the neocon movement was bad. It was horrible. It was unconstitutional. And it was it was not in alignment with our core values. And so we started ostracizing Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. Right. And, we, and John McCain, the worst of them all. When we start to ostracize them ourselves, th- those radical liberals on the left, they they sort of like sweep in and almost take the position because they hate us more than they hate them. And they've, they've created and now they're in power so now the, the the mechanisms are theirs to own now it's their authority now it's their people that are doing it and we all hate tyranny every one of us does until it's our own form of it right when we're in charge hmm. status quo baby let's go and uh and so it has changed over time and in, in the the left was always anti-war out of principle right the road the right was always pro um um strength through force out of Principle, their principles were different. And over time, I think the right has become anti war out of principle because we don't follow a process. And the left has become pro war because they have the reins of power. And uh, everybody, every, like I said, everybody loves their own form of tyranny. And so the only way I think we can ever reduce the military industrial complex's weight and bearing and control over our system is going to be a hard stop. We take away their playthings, right? We take away the ability for them to have 50% of the, the, the fighting force of America without them following the right process. I can replace a Congressman from Cheyenne, Wyoming. I can replace a Congressman from Tucson, Arizona. I can't replace a board member at Raytheon, right? So we fight, where we lift where we stand. We fight the battles that we are best equipped to fight. And even better than that, I can replace a legislator from District 14 in Eagle, Idaho infinitely easier than I can replace a congressman from Idaho. And so you use the lever that you have the most, um, the best fulcrum on, right? Wherever you have the most force, that's where you fight your fights and you teach others how to do the same that are aligned in the same philosophy. And we, we start to move mountains and we start to change things by changing where we live and what's within our immediate reach. And that's the only way that we're going to get to be able to stop this runaway spending, military, industrial corruption Um, Around throughout our government. Yeah. Well
2: said. Great answer. And I guess I I have a question here. I guess it kind of aligns. You know, speaking of the left shifting to being more pro war, I mean, I guess it's no secret that, you know, many on the left blindly support the war in Ukraine, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole put the Ukraine flag in your bio thing, that was like a a huge campaign that happened in like February, March of last year when the initial conflict started. Um, I had a tweet go viral yesterday. And one of the facets in the tweet that I mentioned was the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which apparently is still a source of contention and confusion. Now, obviously, no one has definitive hard proof, but Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch has documented in detail that according to his sources, the U.S. was involved, and there's also indicators. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of red flags like Potus and um, Victoria Newland, the Undersecretary of the State for Political Affairs. They both said in separate quotes, like uh, almost like a month apart, that basically the U.S. would engage in dismantling the pipeline in one form or another, and also the fact that the mainstream media is completely silent about it is, you know, also a pretty good indicator. Uh, although the New York Times did suggest that, um, what was it, like the intelligence leak surrounding the sabotage of the pipelines the has provided more questions than answers, and it may be in no one's interest to reveal more, <laughs> which is absolutely <laughs> crazy and, and basically saying the quiet part out loud. But it's a lot of indicators that the pipeline was destroyed by the US, and you know, with, with that said, I still have people on my Twitter telling me that the bombing was carried out by pro-Ukraine operatives or even Russia itself, which doesn't make a lot of sense in my opinion. So like, where do you stand on this topic and do you believe that the US government wouldn't participate in something like this, even though it had ample incentives to pull
0: off a mission of this sort? Um, Dan McKnight is happy and Dan McKnight did not commit suicide. (laughs) <laughs> so I have to put my tinfoil hat on for a minute and if and, you don't mind my disclosures, look, it, right. The uh, you said maybe the, the most interesting statement of the day, right? Pro Ukraine operatives destroyed the, the Nord stream pipeline. I agree hundred percent who those operatives are is the source of contention. I, I submit that it was, that Cy Hirsch was right. Um, but I'm not a, I, I'm not an investigative journalist, Um, I I haven't studied it at length, but his his reporting is pretty compelling um, and there's been no hard denial um, whatsoever. So what we need, what we need is what Idaho was famous for. Uh, We had a very, very, very powerful senator, uh, Frank Church, who had the church committee in the late 70s that basically ripped the, the, the shades off of the whole Vietnam mess and the, the CIA monitoring American citizens and the weaponization of America, part one, like the first part of really the the the, um, the surveillance state. And we need more frank churches, right? We need more people in Congress to, to demand that people are called before their committees and forced to testify and let's find out. No one's asking the question and that's that's right. what raises the biggest concern. If we didn't do it, who did? We should probably know because if we are truly a, a champion and a protector of NATO, which I hate that we are, but we are, this was an attack on NATO. So either we attacked our own organization, mm-hmm. NATO, or somebody attacked us and we are duty bound yep. to respond. But nobody's asking the questions, which tells me that there is more to it than what meets the eye. And uh, it, it does, it's going to take a new Frank church to
1: do this. Yeah, it certainly stinks, man. <laughs> we, uh, I guess, we're getting kind of uh, like defeatist. We, we, we oftentimes like to play devil's advocate and, you know, and try to point out all the what ifs. Um, but in a change of that, you know, what what are some of the success stories or like the milestones that you guys have achieved uh, with Defend the Guard or uh, Bring Our Troops Home since since you started?
0: Oh man, Kyle, where do we start? You know, the number of people that are in our organization.
1: Okay, good. I got you that long list. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's there's so many.
0: Um, you know, we we have an a, a email list that we've built that regularly gets 50% plus open wow. rates to the messages that we send. Ask any male organization in the world what the standard open rate is and they're going to tell you eight, right. nine, 10% if you're a rock star. We're over 50%. Um, so I would say that's a that's a win that we're talking to the right people, right? People are listening. Uh, number two, um, and I'm going to expand on this uh, in, in a little bit. In Montana this year, uh, we we had a victory in the in the House of Representatives. It passed out of committee through a, a Herculean effort by a young man. <clears throat> uh, this young man was a senior in high school when he first heard about Defend the Guard while listening to a anti-war Scott Horton uh, podcast that I was on. He took the idea back to his high school civics class and told his teacher about it, a man named Lee Deming, and said, hey, this makes sense. Let's let's talk about this in class. And they explored it for a minute and then they put it aside. Well, situations changed. About three years later, Lee Deming decided to run for the legislature in Wyoming, I mean, excuse me, in Montana. And that young student was an activist in Montana and Lee brought him on as a consultant on his campaign. And after he was elected, Um, That young man reminded him of that defend the guard lesson they'd had four years ago and Lee decided to dive into it and look into it and he contacted us and decided he wanted to sponsor the bill. And he took that bill and he digested it, he studied it, he researched it, he took it to the committee, he whipped the votes, he did all the things you would want a champion to do. And then he laid it all on the line and he bore his soul to this committee and uh, the bill passed and it was our first victory passed in in Montana because of Lee Deming and Ian McCollum who was a young high school student when he first learned about it. So the seeds have been planted, right? The seeds have been planted and it's starting to bear fruit. Um, Immediately after that, we had a champion in Arizona, Senator Wendy Rogers. We've all seen Wendy on national media. You know, she was heavily involved in the election integrity stuff. She's a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel pilot, combat pilot. She took our bill and took it to the next level. Um, She had two people in in the Senate committee uh, that supported the bill, her and one others. And uh, she came back to us and said, I don't know if it's going to get done. I need your help. And so we activated our grassroots organization. We applied some very tactical pressure. We filled the the Capitol building with thousands, tens of thousands of phone calls over a 48-hour period from people like myself and like you that believe in this. We flooded them with tens of thousands of emails of support, petition signatures, And we flipped every single member of that committee, every single Republican on that committee got in line and agreed that this was right and it needed to pass. And I have the whip the whip vote um, card from Wendy Rogers. She sent me a picture of it and it has every single Republican in the Arizona Senate marked as a yes seconds before they went onto the floor to vote for it. Not a single Democrat voted in support of it. Um, And so we have victories happening. It ended up passing the Senate and it got tra- transmitted to the House where a Republican speaker of the House, Ben Toma, rest his soul, because he's no longer going to be speaker. So when we're done with him, um, blocked the bill and wouldn't even allow it to be assigned to a committee. And so we we pick our battles. We fight. We're, uh, I like to call us the uh, the Roomba, you know, those vacuums in a room, right? <laughs> you just, you're driving straight ahead until something you bump into something and then you bump it and you pivot. and You keep pivoting until you find your way around it because the, the fastest way to get from A to B is not a straight line, right? It's whatever the hell the fastest way is. <laughs> and we're gonna get there. And uh, so if we have to remove a Republican Speaker of the House, we're gonna do it. And uh, our our organization is large, it is robust, it is impassioned, and the people in our organization have the skin in the game. They've bled the blood, right? They've, they've put in the work and you cannot look us in the eye and tell us that we don't know what we're talking about because we've been there. And uh, it, it, that, carries a certain amount of weight and gravitas when you walk into the Capitol building. When you walk in with, with men in, in American Legion hats and uh, veteran biker jackets, uh, big burly chested men that have grown beards, but they still maintain a high and tight and a little bit of military presence. Um, we carry some weight with us. And, uh, and when we do, uh, we do it with as, as efficiently as possible. And with that, we, 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 we operate on a shoestring budget. Every penny has a name on it when it comes in the door and it is spent for nothing except advancing this cause. It is spent to pay activists that need to, if we need people to help leaflet an area, it is used to pay the salaries of a a professional communicator that can help write content. Not one penny is spent frivolously on a a rubber chicken dinner. Um, We don't support (laughs) candidates in their campaign funds. We are grassroots focused, and uh, it's the small dollar uh, donation dollars that come in from individuals, no corporations. Um, that that help fund this fuelless thing, and uh, you know, people flood our website. You know, bring our troops home. Us or defend the guard. Us, and it's five dollars here and it's five dollars there, and monthly donors of ten dollars every month, reoccurring, are funding this war. And it's it may be the most efficient use of money you're going to see in politics. I love it, man.
1: We call those guys with the hats and the. Uh... The patches, you know, and the beards, this is spec ops, anti-war spec ops.
0: <laughs> you know, that's ex- I love that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tax that. I'm taking hey.
2: that. <laughs> well, we are getting close to the wrap here. And usually at the end of our podcast, we try to leave on a bit of a white pill. So in your promotional video for your organization, you said to save America, we've got to end the empire. And zooming out a little bit, we need a we need a vision as to what that looks like. So, in your opinion, how do we get there, and what does that look like?
0: So, you know, I love that you use the white pill reference because you know a white pill is essentially enlightenment and hope, right? It's it's acceptance of the good and and the and the bad realities of our own situation. And, mm-hmm. and so, my white pill is this: every single day, I meet people that believe like we do, and they they come from areas that you wouldn't you wouldn't believe they exist. Um, we are passing this defend the guard um, uh, idea, this concept at Republican state central committees and putting it on the Republican platform as a party position. It's happened in Texas. It happened in Georgia. Resolutions have been accepted in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. We're, we're getting the body, the main political class to understand the concept, and it's not because it's a, a flashy or it's a an easy concept to sell. It's because it speaks to their soul. It resonates with them, and so my white pill is that it, it's spreading. And we, you, you saw the Rage Against the Machine um, uh, event in Washington D.C. Yeah, I would say I was the furthest to the right person at that event by a mile, and um, it was it was an event that was filled with with um, people from across the political spectrum. And I don't consider myself far right either. I would say I'm a, I'm a kind of a right-leaning, right of center, right, maybe right right of center. But there were people there. I mean, the, the, the unnatural hair colors that were there was astonishing. Um, it, 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 it spoke to my box of crayons. You know, I, I really felt like I was I was in a Marine box of crayons with all the hair colors. Every <laughs> position you can imagine. There were people there like Jimmy Dore that believes in socialization of medicine and, and, and welfare and people that believed in sound. Fiscal policies, we couldn't agree on anything. But at that organization, and they say there was only a few thousand people there. I was there, I'm telling you right now, it was 10 plus thousand people that were at the Capitol Mall. Um, All across the political spectrum, we agreed on one thing, that war needs to be restrained and we need to do it. And There was one, one call to action in that entire event. One. Everybody else was there waving a sign and feeling good and listening to some wonderful music. But there was one call to action and it was us saying we can fight this fight. We can win this fight, but we can't do it here in the shadow of of Washington, D.C. We have to do it in our Capitol buildings. Join the movement. You know, go to defendtheguard.us and sign the petition. We'll call you one of our members and we'll communicate with you and we can develop a network. So my white pill is that people are opening up. They're seeing hope that there is a chance. Um, As ugly as it was, as horrible as it was, we got out of Afghanistan and it was terrible the way we did it but we're out. Um, there, there is a chance. We we saw a, a bipartisan effort in Congress to repeal the AUMF and, and get out of Syria and Yemen recently. It failed, but the numbers are growing, right? The movement is alive. It's going to take a little bit of gas in the tank to do it. It's going to take veterans like myself that are still fairly, um, I don't like to say fit, but we still maintain a little bit of military bearing, um, a little bit of military grooming and and that efficiency and that that toss of the position, um, and so the, the white pill for me is is that is that the movement is growing and people are starting to see it and I get approached all the time and I used it used to be thank you for your service right we used to get that empty statement that sentiment um, you know thank you for, mm-hmm. for 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 defending us we used to get things like free fajitas on Veterans Day and you know a free whatever a coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> Now people are saying, thank you, we support the movement. How can I help? And that has been a monstrous shift. It has changed the length of the lever and the position of the fulcrum. And uh, it's it, it multiplies every single day.
2: Outstanding answer, man. And happy to hear that. And I, I feel the same way. I feel like COVID was a, a big impetus behind that as well. And uh, I think more and more people just the internet and social media have the access, even though they're trying their best to censor us. but. So we have defendtheguard.us, bringourtroopshome.us. And if you want to become a member, guys, go to bringourtroopshome.us slash 107club. Uh, That's where you can support Dan's work, become a member. And feel free to plug anything else you'd like, Dan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have a political leadership school that we're teaching. We've taught it in Pima County, Arizona, three times. And it teaches people how to be effective at, at local politics. And uh, our students have taken over the school boards, the board of commissioners, the city council, and all three legislative seats in Tucson, which is a democratic stronghold. And they brought back to to uh, a, liberty, a liberty faction, a, a freedom, a self uh, manifest destiny type situation. Uh, the school will go anywhere. We'll teach anybody that'll put 40 people in a room. And you can find that on the website as well. But m- the last thing I would ask is, if you can bring our troops home.us, become a member of the Ten Seven club, $10 a month, will put you in an automatic drawing four times a year for these things that we give away. Um, We give away all the time different cool things, but usually it's a gun or a a, something that veterans love. Uh, We gave away two 1911 pistols to commemorate uh, the anniversary of the American Legion um, Mm -hmm. a month ago. And it's something to give back to our members who support us. And uh, that would be my ask is please join the 107 Club. Give what you can. And I promise you, we won't let you down and we're going to contact you just enough to keep you interested and in not spam you or sell your, our list. I promise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have that link below the podcast for all our listeners out there.
2: Absolutely. Well, Dan, there aren't enough people in this world who can see through the lies, the propaganda and the sophistry. And to be honest, sometimes it seems like it in many ways, is probably just easier to believe the lies but it takes courage to stand up and speak out and demand truth and answers. And it's people like yourself who are changing the world for the better and saying, no, I will no longer continue to be quiet. I will no longer continue living a lie. And for that, we commend you. So thank you for your fighting spirit and trying to steer the ship in the right direction. We certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you, Dan.
0: You bet. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for having a platform that speaks to uh, people using their own brains to to think through and, and and create their own destiny so thank you
1: definitely brother it's always good to talk to a marine who's who's woken up too